Well, thank you for downloading our latest podcast on Oxford University's work in the history of the book. My name is Adam Smythe, and I am delighted to be sitting in the old dean's room in Balliol College in Oxford. It's the last day of term, so undergraduates are scuttling away to wherever they go for the vacation. And I'm here with Lucy Kelsall and Nikki Tompkins, and we are going to talk a little bit about Nicholas Crouch, 17th century Balliol person, and his books, because there has been a recent project. There's an ongoing project about Crouch's books, which Balliol holds and attempts to conserve them and catalogue them, which is all very exciting. And we're going to talk through some examples of Crouch's books that we have beautiful things on the table before us right now. So maybe, Lucy, could you say a little bit about Crouch, who he was, why he might be interesting, why you would bother to spend months and months and months cataloguing his books? Yeah, so Crouch was unusual perhaps as a focus for a project because he's not somebody who did really extraordinary things. He's somebody who lived a fairly quiet, fairly ordinary life, mostly within the walls of Balliol. Uh-huh. Um, he came to Balliol in 1634 as a student and he later became a fellow. He held various offices within college and he died in post. He was still 1690. Where's he buried? Do we know? I don't know. <laughs> OK. I thought he might be on the college quad or something like that. He could well be. <laughs> How many books do we have well, from him? He left his books to the college? Is that he right? left the choice of his books okay. um, to the college library. And so what we have, we have a, a record of some of the books that came to us then in 1690 in the uh, Library Benefactions book, which lists 319 volumes that we received then from Crouch. Okay. But it's also possible that he was giving us some books during his lifetime or that he was buying some books for the library because we do have some books that were definitely owned by him but are not on that list. Okay. Um, so that kind of gives us some starting point, but there's also other books that have evidence of his ownership. And you've been involved in cataloguing them, is that right? Working out what they are and describing them and therefore letting other people access them, is that the idea? Yes. Um, we're hoping that once the project is finished that the books will be more accessible to people who want to come and do research and um, with the collection and then Nikki's conservation work will mean that the books can also be handled because a lot of them are in quite a fragile condition. Right okay great. So Nikki you're working on the conservation side of things so how much work is that? Are they very <laughs> fragile? They look the ones we have before us look like they're the terrifying whenever I go to the library and you look at a 1670 book there's that terrifying moment when you give it back when there's a little crumb of the binding or the mm. cover that's still on your desk. And it's yes. gradually disappearing and eventually there'll be no book. So how, 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 what condition are these books in? That's typical for this collection. So um, mm. the thing to probably mention is that many of these books are tracked volumes. Right. So Crouch was collecting ephemeral material on a huge range of subjects and then getting them bound together in Oxford. And then he would paint the four edges and demarcate how many tracts were in each volume. Right. And this was a collection that he was using, that we've got a lot of evidence to show that he was using them either prior to them being bound together and after they were in volumes. And the volumes show this evidence of use in their material structure. So, for example, this item I've got here. Yeah, what um, is this? This is one of his medical tracts. So it is full of a number of um, tracts and pamphlets on a medical subject okay. um, that he got bound together in Oxford in a very classic Nicholas Crouch style. We've got this very thinly paired calfskin cover and that you can see when I move it under the light Mm -hmm. how fractured that leather surface is Mm -hmm. where there's already a lot of loss to the leather surface. Um, It's also been treated at some point in the 20th century probably, early 20th century with some kind of leather dressing that's exacerbated the deterioration of the leather. 
this makes it really, it can be quite difficult to handle for researchers. As you said, um, it, the leather surface tends to crumble and mm -hmm. crack and will flake away. Mm -hmm. Makes it a real challenge for conserving as well. Um, and you can particularly see this on the spines when you start to move it in the light. You can see the fractures in the leather and how deteriorated that is. A key part of this project is about making the books functional and handleable again while preserving as much of the original material mm. as possible. My task has been trying to find conservation techniques and approaches that are going to work with difficult leather and yeah. not just remove the leather and replace it with new leather. Yeah. You can see here in this book along the spine um, there are cracks forming and actually when you start to open the book in the middle at one of these cracks, wow. can you see there, you, there's just daylight yeah. straight the way through. The sewing is now here, that sewing is definitely broken, um, but the sewing supports, which run along the spine and create these bands, they're still intact. So that's what's holding that book together, but okay. not for that much longer. Yeah. So with heavy research or without using good supports, when you're reading a book like this, that could very easily break. So I need to find ways of um, supporting that. So how long would you spend working on this, this particular volume, which has, as you said, that kind of terrifying daylight yes. through the spine? When you open it up halfway, you can see right the other side. Yes, and you can also see here at the joint where that mm. front board is constantly flexing and yeah. you can clearly see yeah, light through gap. that. It's just being held on by these alum tord supports. I would probably have quoted for... Um, so we had to do a spreadsheet mm -hmm. survey of um, all 413 of the tract volumes and make a rough time estimate. This one would probably take me about 12, 13 hours, right. I think, okay. to work on. Well, that that would quick. Yes. I've been working on, um, I've got a fine-tuned method and approach right. now, so okay. that it would have taken me longer at the beginning. But I know exactly how I'd go in approaching this one. Mm -hmm. This one, I might, this spine is particularly bad on this one. I wouldn't, I would not be looking forward to working with that. You can see um, on something like here, lifting what are that we leather. At here? This is a particularly. This was an, a particularly problematic conservation job because not only was the spine um, breaking in a number of places, but the sewing had completely broken down in the last tract. Pages were falling out. Whole okay. sections were loose. Um, so the the difficulty was in making a decision that wasn't going to require dismantling the entire binding, but to do something in situ. And you can see how lifting the leather along this joint edge. Did, there was some loss right. to the surface layer and it's just um, it's just a real challenge to work with that and trying to figure out how you can restore okay. functional integrity to a volume and structural integrity while maintaining those original materials yeah. and the aesthetic well, that's look. Well, that's what I was going to say. There must be a tension, a sort of algorithm in your head between... Because everyone's interested mm. in book use and signs of use and marks of use and wear and the, the, yes. the, the sort of social life of these books. Definitely. But at the same time, you don't want them to disappear into dust mm. on your desk. So that, but the, that's a complicated balancing act, isn't it? Mm. Between, as you say, you don't want to kind of do the equivalent of pulling it apart and creating something completely new and effacing yes. all that history, mm. but you want to make it usable. So that's Definitely. Tricky. I mean, this one here, this was in a very, this is a similar one to this one we were just looking at with mm. all the damage. And one of the classic approaches that's been working very well for this collection. Um, so all of the books in this collection have this, uh, these labels that have been attached to the spine on a red goat skin, tooled in gold, um, that either usually either say miscellaneous tracts or mm. medical tracts. Um, and I find that these labels can be lifted very easily, mm. all in one piece. 
and that gives me access to the spine. Mm. And so underneath that label, I can then remove the old leather and the very brittle, heavily applied animal glue. There are no spine linings um, in this binding structure, which has been part of the problem of the breakdown in the leather and the sewing. And then underneath that label, I can insert layers of Japanese paper, really strong aero cotton, and another layer of toned Japanese paper. Um, and that creates a strong hold on the spine and bridges those splits mm -hmm. in the text block. Um, and I try to do that at least at head and tail as well, mm -hmm. and along the splitting joints. Mm -hmm. So you still have a very vulnerable book. I mean, this is something that needs to be handled with care, um, but with confidence mm -hmm. too. And researchers can now open this, mm -hmm. and you can feel still, still where those weak points are, but... I don't know if you can see, there is some uh, a layer of Japanese paper that's yeah. also been inserted in here that just helps create a bit of resistance yeah. in the structure. So yeah. they will be inserted at each of those breakpoints. It's awaiting its readers one. now. It's awaiting its readers, yeah. It's ready, it's ready to be consulted yeah. with some care and a bit of respect for the binding. Great, great. Lucy, can you tell us a little bit about the volume that's in front of us now? Yeah, so this is something that I catalogued quite early on in the project and that then went to Nikki uh, to repair because um, it was in a very poor condition as she was saying, and one of the reasons, so um, we've been working together to see which volumes also need to be prioritised in terms of their content and what within them might be especially rare or mm -hmm. unique. And um, this volume does have uh, one item in it that's uh, uh, unique in its present state. So this um, this edition of the item, this 1622, um, there is also an earlier 16th century copy that's recorded on ESTC that's also held by one library, but um, Balliol and Crouch uh, hold the only copy of um, this specific item. Oh. And um, it's also my favourite item in the collection because um, it's uh, a text for language learning. So um, you can see here that there are three columns um, on the pages. Uh, it's laid out in the form of dialogue. The central column is uh, the French text and on the left you can see uh, the English translation but on the right here you can see the phonetic rendering of That's the English translation. Isn't it? So it's a kind of um, Fringlish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's amazing. So this is 1622? Yes. And it's the only copy of this? Yes. Edition. So it was, um, it was printed earlier but um, yeah, this is the only currently recorded copy of wow. this. Wow. Um, it makes me think immediately of Henry the Shakespeare's Henry V and the and Henry talking to Kate, yeah, the, yeah. the French and the English exchange. You put that <laughs> it next might to have this. been handy for them to have a copy of this. Yeah. So, so you notice this, and you and it, this is therefore very interesting because it's a unique copy of this edition. So that what that was prioritised in the cataloguing conservation process as a result of that. Yes, um, there are a number. There are, um, I think, around. 30 uh, items that are unique that we found um, during the project in mm -hmm. this collection. And there is one volume in particular that is in a really terrible state. So it's actually at the conservation studio at the moment because it's almost in pieces. But it has um, around seven unique items in it, I think. Yes. Um, a lot yeah. of them are quite small things, which is um, why they wouldn't have necessarily um, survived in... Uh, many copies of them would have just um, yeah yeah 
but when they are all bound together into books that's the like this, yeah. this is one of the way of preserving things that wouldn't necessarily mm. otherwise it's such a great survived. testament to the structure of a book to protecting paper objects yes. i mean so much of this material was printed mm. to be read and thrown away mm -hmm. or not to survive the centuries but um thanks to nicholas crouch and his uh very meticulous record keeping and binding that we've still got them here. Do you get the sense of a personality of, of, of a sort of governing spirit behind the collection of Crouch? Is this a, yeah, is this a form definitely. of self-representation this collection? So um, one of the interesting things that we've learned about Crouch is that so he does annotate his texts and um, in most of his um, volumes that contain numerous items he writes uh, he writes a contents list. Oh so we're looking at, at the, the opening pages of a of a track volume here, is that right? Yes, and, and he writes on the end papers here and he often includes um, so a list of what items are in the volume, the prices, um, the cost of binding the volume wow. together. That's Some amazingly form. useful That's information, isn't it? Fantastic yeah, resource, yeah. really so fantastic. Sometimes There's, he names the binder. Wow. Um, Have people worked on that in a sustained way, then the sort of the history of binding prices? And... I think it's a real gift having such a large yeah. collection of a very specific local yeah. binder yeah. and all the pricing. So part of our project yeah. is we're recording all of um, those details because both as cataloguer and conservator, we're getting to spend a lot of time with these books yeah. and um, record these details as we go along. Does he record the name of the binders? Uh, he sometimes does, a couple but of not times. always. Right. Yeah. yeah, and there are about four or five different named binders within the collection. That's interesting. Why do you think... Why would one do that? I mean, it's wonderful for us because we're interested in these kind of questions with, from a historical vantage but it seems like, <coughs> in some ways, an odd thing to do. Unless you're, Was he conscious of this as a collection right from the start, that he was handing to posterity, and therefore all that stuff mm. was important? Or was he just I, I OCD? Think, or I what? don't think he was. Well, yeah... <laughs> I would say that he was a little bit obsessive in his um, recording. So as well as uh, his printed book collection, we hold a lot of other um, notebooks and things in his hand. And he also um, was very involved with the college accounts and archives. Yeah. So we have a lot of other things by him. And one thing, he really loves lists. He really loves recording things. He's not necessarily... Um, creating all these lists and things himself. Often he's copying them out from other places or he's creating his own indexes for right. books that he's reading. Um, and I think that these contents lists are um, just another example of how much he's very interested in recording details, keeping track of things. Also costs, I feel like he's a little bit penny-pinching maybe. He was, he's not paying a lot for these bindings. They're not, mm. they're not fancy, they're, not, they're very workmanlike. He's using the books. Right, because I'm interested in this kind of Samuel band as a form and, and when he gets multiple tracks and bundles them together and bounds, binds them or has them bound, how much thematic consistency is, is there within a single volume? Is he like gathering tracks all about the plague or all about the smallpox or, you know, is there a... Yeah. Is, there a is, is it curated carefully? It's sometimes the case, but usually it's not. Really, and that's mm. quite surprising in the context of his character, where he mm. loves to organise things and he loves to. But often the items within the volume may be of different dates. Sometimes they're from different centuries. Like he, only a small proportion of his collection is sixteenth century, mm -hmm. um, and some of those are bound in volumes together. But some of them are kind of mixed mm -hmm. up, and mm -hmm. sometimes he is about between a quarter and a fifth of his collection is medical, mm -hmm. and a lot of those works are together. Um, but there are also a lot 
of uh, volumes where you'll come to it and the first tract is about trade, then you have something about a horrible crime and then you have something about politics. He's put them all together and maybe it's just, yeah, when he's receiving them, what he's mm. interested in. He so nice sense, nice sense of the text kind of fluttering through the air at that point and being caught. C- cataloguing, I mean, how, how, how thorough does one catalogue? I mean, you could... I suppose a, a version of a catalogue would be a sort of transcription of the entire book, or you just have a title and a date, or there's somewhere in between. I'd say it's in between those two. <laughs> so how, how do you... So that, again, that's another, presumably, algorithm or calculation about the number of volumes, the time mm. yes. you yes. can spend the, on each book. Uh, one of the things about this project was that the... Uh, targets were fairly ambitious and also it wasn't known exactly how much there was in the collection we knew how many volumes but some volumes have only two or three items in some of them have 50 or 70 individual items so that can take um, much longer yeah Yeah, you're cataloguing each bibliographical item separately the standards for rare book cataloguing are more detailed than for modern books so you're recording in addition to um, the obvious things like the title and the date and kind of standardising those you're also recording details of the binding and of the provenance and um, all kinds of associated things about um, not only the bibliographical items but the way in which the text this specific uh, copy has been handled and um, who has looked at it who's used it in terms of say marginal annotations and manicules that might be through it or underlinings i mean how much of that copy specific annotation stuff goes into your description I will record um, when there are annotations and things. Um, it will vary how much depth I go into. With this project, there hasn't been a lot of time for really necessarily researching exactly mm. what's going on. I, like, we're hoping that people... There's definitely a lot of things that we haven't had time mm. to look into, but that we'd like to, that we're hoping yeah. that people will come and research later as yeah. well, yeah. and that they'll have now the resources to kind of make that starting point. I have actually photograph most of the manicures I found because I really love manicures. But yeah, who, do, who doesn't love a manicure? You have to be a bit prophetic, don't you, in that you have to sort of presumably anticipate or at least not inhibit future scholarly questions that you probably can't guess. Like 30 years ago, people have been baffled at the interest in history of reading, say, or book use that we see now. I guess you kind of have to keep the the data, to use a horrible word, sufficiently unmediated to enable people in the future to do things that we can't anticipate. Is that that right? I think also having a project like this where you have a cataloger and conservator who are working in tandem. And I think both of us really like spreadsheets and finding (laughs) ways of recording data and recording what we're finding in front of us. And I think I think we're both quite interested in ways that that can then go on and be useful yeah. to other people and other researchers. Uh, whenever an object comes into the studio, I have to fill out a documentation form, which I'm doing in Excel, so it can be can be easily transposed into different formats and it's digital data. It's not just a hard piece of paper. And I'm recording very fine details about the binding, not just the condition of it. So whether or not the supports are alum, tord or cord, because all of those are signifiers for who was doing the binding, when it was done, and why there were certain shifts and changes over mm-hmm. over the period that these bindings belong to. And then I can do that in tandem with the catalogue, uh-huh. and I can put bits of information about the conservation directly into the catalogue. We can find ways to link that binding-related data with the catalogue, and then hopefully, you know, if there are future researchers who want access to all of this material and content-based information that it's 
all there and accessible and you don't have to go rooting around in a conservation studio for it. Fantastic, so, mm. fantastic. Do we, have, do we have one more volume we could look at? So um, this is just an example of how Crouch is reading and what he's interested in. And what he's interested in a lot of the time is making lists and also he loves maths. Right. He's often, he also, he's a big fan of um, correcting things that are wrong. Mm. Right. He, whether it's very minor typos, he often goes through and he'll have no annotations except that he has really picked out even the smallest typos and Correcting them. the binding <laughs> as well when he said that lovely note about, oh, this page is in the wrong place due to the ignorance of the binder. Really? I really like, yeah. So he's <laughs> very involved in these as physical objects. Yeah, and this is a, an architectural item that lists all the dimensions of uh, the Escuria, which is a um, monastery in Spain. And he That's Crouch's own lists. handwritten list of, of the dimensions. Yes, it looks like he started off in the margin making a little note, okay. but he's actually gone on onto some blank yeah. leaves here where he can more fully express his thoughts which are mostly mathematical so you can see here it says the side of the escurial was in length and he's put 2980 foot or 993 yards one foot or 180 pole three yards one foot or four furlongs 20 poles that seems to me quite a lot like he's just playing with those numbers for his own amusement there's no i can't think of a purpose that he might need to give all these different mm. uh, groupings of measurements. There are quite a lot of instances like that. We know that, as well as his work in college, he was practising as a physician, so a lot of his notebooks and things are medical, but he was also a member of the um, Philosophical Society of Oxford. And so he seems to have been interested in a lot of things for their own sake and lots of different topics that they're just kind of seeking out new knowledge and trying to gather information. And a lot of what we find in his books seems to be his love of putting things in order and, yeah, just uh, that he's doing things for fun, mm. it seems to be. I think he'd appreciate our current work on his collection. <laughs> it's, it's sort of, it's in line with his spirit. Yes, I think and so. And, yeah. I think he'd really like Microsoft Excel. I think he'd really like Excel, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he was born four centuries too early. I think we've got time to look at one more item. Nikki, you've got an amazing coloured object there. Tell us about that. What are you looking at? So... In most of these tract volumes of his, um, he would get probably commissioned either by the binder, we're not yet entirely sure, but he would demarcate where the different tracts and items begin by painting the edges of the text block in a variety of colours. Sometimes they'd also be sprinkled and we see reds, yellows, blues, all sorts of different colours throughout the collection and it's um, most probably this collection originally would be stored four edge out right. so you wouldn't see the spines on the books so you'd have these incredible multi-coloured four right. edges in the library all facing outwards and he also um, in quite a few of the books we see evidence and some existing examples of where he would attach labels um, with text onto the front of the page. So this is the page with a big letter W that's been... Yeah, so that would be... The ink is very deteriorated yeah. here in the paper, but that letter W would fold out and would be visible from oh. when you're standing in front of your bookshelves. Okay. So, um, yeah, really interesting to think about the collection as a whole and how that would have looked. Yeah, the aesthetics used. of a library. Mm. That's amazing. Definitely. The, the four edges are... So each track's four edges are coloured differently, so you can see immediately that mm. there are 
eight or nine or eleven or five different tracks there. So I'm pretty certain that all of these red goatskin labels would have been um, added at a later date. Okay. Possibly not even in Crouch's lifetime, perhaps when it became part of Balliol College Library. Okay. We also know that they would have been stored for edge out when the books were chained as part of Balliol Library yeah. um, because the chain would have been attached to that for edge um, so you wouldn't want the chain part to be going into the shelf. Yeah. Um, and this is all putting together this picture of the books as a whole can build a narrative of the collection and how it was being used, not just in Crouch's lifetime, but in the subsequent centuries. That, that kind of forage painting, is that is that common in books at this time? I haven't seen that. I haven't I seen haven't many, just, I, I can't think no. of examples of that. I think it's not the only example, talking mm. to my colleagues about it, but it's definitely very unusual, and especially how consistent he was throughout the collection. We don't Here we can see it on both the head edge, mm. tail edge, and the fore edge. We don't always see that. Sometimes um, it's only on the fore edge, and the head edge and tail edge are sprinkled differently. As you can see here, we've got a sprinkling that's uniform, and then only the fore edge, fore edge is painted. This might have been because it was just a bit too difficult to do all the edges. Um, it can be quite tricky from a practical perspective, yeah. especially when you've got lots of uh, small tracts. And we often see, I don't know if I can find a good example here, where you can start to see where the paint or the pigment mm. has gone mm -hmm. into the page. So these, were, these weren't the fine binding job that you might expect. Again, yeah. he was a bit of a cheapskate. Yeah. But we do have evidence of him um, detailing how much it cost. Yeah, there's one item where at the foot of his contents list um, he records that he paid dough, which was one of the binders that he used, a penny for colouring. Penny um, for colouring. Yeah, and that's um, one of the tracks that has kind of alternating red and plain wow. here on the forage. And that's just, that's an incredible insight. Yeah. Into, yeah, a really important resource for book, book historians. Thank you, Lucy and Nikki, for talking to me very much about this amazing Crouch collection. And the cataloguing is still ongoing, right? It's still happening? Yes, and the conservation. And the conservation. Yeah, conservation will be carrying on till August. Brilliant, brilliant. So if you listeners would like to know more, um, there's a blog, Balliol Historic Collections. I'm looking at you, Lucy. Yes, Historic Collections at Balliol. Okay. Um, and the bigger implication is that there is this astonishing collection which is coming into focus for anyone interested in 17th century books, collecting, um, methods of cataloguing, and a whole range of things. Once uh, the cataloguing and conservation is complete, um, there'll also be an exhibition and hopefully a conference at some point, so kind of look out for more about Crouch. I'll be giving a talk at the Unlocking Archives um, next term in the second half of Trinity term. Brilliant. So watch out for that. Okay, that's the summer term. That's fantastic. And thank you for listening, and we will be back in the future with more about Crouch, I'm sure. Mm -hmm.